Hi, this is Kelly Edwards, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. So I want to tell you a little bit about our main sponsor for the episode. Script Anatomy is a screenwriting school that gets incredible results. In just four years, their students have won 58 fellowships, half of them at major studios. In 2020 alone, Script Anatomy won four out of 11 fellowships at CBS and three out of eight at Warner Brothers. Why? Because the instructors are all working writers with current credits. They teach a consistent tool-based program and they treat students like emerging professionals. To get your writing career started, go to scriptanatomy.com. This is Gray, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 120 for November 16th, 2021. Well, today I'm so excited to bring you an interview with Kelly Edwards, author of The Executive Chair. I really highly recommend this book, and you're going to find out why in this interview. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Well, honestly, I, I know we were talking a little bit before we started here, but I don't know that there's another book out there that comes from the executive side. We, we, we hear from many, many perspectives of writers who've had that terrible, fearful experience of going in to pitch shows, and, and it, it's almost like there's this mystique about the people who are sitting on the couches on the other side, and we have to try to reverse engineer what they're thinking. Well, your, your book really breaks down exactly what you're thinking from the executive side, and I found it so, so helpful. Yay! <laughs> Good. Well, the reason I wanted to I wanted to write this is that I feel as though I've been working in this industry for a long time and I've been working on the side of getting more people into the tent. So, my entire career has been opening doors and I felt like this was a time to write something that demystified the whole process because there is such this 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 veil of secrecy and it doesn't have to be that way. So, I wanted to make sure that I put everything down on paper and and got it out. I sort of call it the, the cheat sheet of um, of entertainment development because it feels like there should be no gatekeepers. There should be a way for everybody to get their content made. So why not take the first step and make the development process a little less scary? Well, you know, I, actually the thing that surprised me the most probably about your book was just how hopeful and how positive it was. Because because when you say gatekeeper, that's that's the way a lot of people think about executives, that they're there to say no. Um, that that you know you know you have to pitch and pitch and pitch and so many shows get shot down, so many ideas get shot down, you have those scary note calls telling you you gotta change your story here, 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 and you get this idea that executives are are out to get you, so to speak. But what what I loved about your book was that you you shared just how first of all, how passionate you were about getting the story right and how you wanted to find new storytellers and how you're you're really a collaborator with the writers of a show um and we're definitely going to get to more of that in the inter interview but first I, I really wanted you to share a bit about your story and i think one of the most amazing things about your story is is that it uh it tells um it's it's a little bit of a winding road to where you got where you are right now and and i hear more and more and more people who um become successful in the industry but it's not this this mythic way of breaking in where people think that you get out of film school and you'll get into a fellowship you'll get into the uh, assistant job and then the very next year you're you're on staff <laughs> right it's not the, like everybody heard that story about Marilyn Monroe being discovered at Schwab is it was I think it's Schwab it was something like that where do you just go was it called Schwab? 
I think it was something like that. In any case, it's like at a, at a diner counter and, and things just don't work that way. You have to work at it, but there are so many ways in and, and there are as many stories about getting in as there are people. So everyone has a different story. My story was different from everybody else's story. Your story is different from mine. So I feel as though when, when people say, oh, you have to work at an agency. No, you don't. I didn't work at an agency. A lot of people that I know didn't work at an agency. So, so that's just a myth. It's really about who you know. It's really about the connections that you make. And you make those connections in a thousand different ways. So my story was um, I grew up in Beverly Hills. I went to um, Beverly High. And every afternoon going from, um, from high school to my dance class, I passed by on the bus. I passed by the uh, Fox Studios. And I looked up there every every single day and thought, I want to do that. I want to work in that. I had been a lover of movies and TV since I was just a little kid and watched the ABC 330 movie on television every every single day after school um, when I was really young. And then I would also watch you know, Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers on the weekends. And I knew that there was something that they did at Fox. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted to be a part of it. So when I got out of college, I, um, I was looking for something to do. And a friend of mine who I had gone to high school with, so this is the first connection in my chain of friends getting me you know, connected to an opportunity. This, this um, friend of mine named Mark Kaplan had been working for a manager and he knew the manager because he was best friends with the manager's daughter. Um, and so he had been working there for the summer and he said, hey, there's gonna be a gap of about a month between me leaving and this new gal starting, would you like to fill in? And I said, sure, let me do it. And you know, I thought I would knock it out of the park and I was terribly mistaken because I was the worst assistant on the planet. But it was my entry into the entertainment business. And just before I was gonna get fired, I walked across, there was a little courtyard, and I walked across the courtyard, and I had, um, had met the assistant for this casting company. Her name was Jill, I don't remember Jill's last name. But I walked across the, uh, the courtyard and I asked Jill, hey, is, is there an opening here? And she goes, yeah, they're actually looking for a receptionist. So that was the first chain in the, it's who you know for me. Mm. And then every single other connection that I had was the reason that I moved from place to place. And I became a writer's assistant and then I worked in development on the feature side and then I went worked in television and I kind of bounced around. And I kind of, I like to say I'm the queen of pivoting because I went back and forth and I moved and I, you know, took these odd, weird chances and wound up sort of bouncing back and forth between film and television until I ended up at Fox and uh, and I landed in comedy development. And I was the first minority manager that they had. So I was the first in the diversity programs over at Fox. And, um, and I don't think I would have gotten in any other way. I feel as though the other side, the flip side of the it's who you know is that sometimes the person who is the other person who gets the nod is the person's, is somebody that they know. Hmm. So I kept getting the door slammed in my face because it literally it happened three times in a row where I was the next person. I was, I was told, oh, you know what? You're the best person for the job. Oh, we, we were going to hire you, but, and it went to someone's relative. And I went, okay, maybe the universe is telling me that 
it's not, this is not for me. And I was, before I got the Fox job, I was about to take my CBEST exam um, numbers, scores, and my application to the LA Unified School District. And I was on my way to the mailbox when I got the call that I got the job at Fox. Wow. So again, sometimes the universe says, hey, guess what? We're kidding. We want you back. So I took the job at Fox. I was there for about five, five and a half years, and then went to UPN and ran the comedy division for UPN for four years. And I loved, loved, loved doing that. But after those four years, I decided I was ready for a bigger challenge and I wanted to do drama as well. And I think you have to remember at the time, the comedies were on the down or on the decline, and mm. dramas were king, which was the exact flip of when I was at Fox, where everybody was doing comedy and nobody was doing drama. So I wound up asking for the bigger job, but they said, "Well, we already just hired somebody to do the drama stuff. We don't really have space for you to do comedy and drama." So I said, "Well, I'm going to go then learn a new skill, which was I wanted to learn how to sell." Because I saw the writing on the wall in the industry, which was, you know, nobody really retires from a development job. You get pushed out at a certain point. And I was probably in the rounding 40 or just turned 40 at the time. And I thought, well, I needed to know how to sell so that I could have career longevity. So I went to partner up with a guy named Jonathan Axelrod. And we, we worked together for about six years under a deal at Paramount. And, and it was an amazing experience because he knew how to sell like nobody's business. It was a skill that I really wanted to perfect. And I also love the idea of working more closely with the writer and with the talent and, and really being a part of the intricate, you know, the, the process of putting together a show. And when you're a buyer and you're sitting, you know, in the executive chair and you're just listening, there is a separation. They don't really think of you as part of the team. They think of the, the produ producers and they think of the studio as part of their team, but they don't really, they look at the, the executives on the network side sort of as the, as the other guys, you know. They're not exactly the enemy, but there's a distance. And I always felt that and I always wanted to be a part of the other side of that, which was, I wanted to be in the camp with, I wanted to be the play, the, in the sandbox with everybody else. So working with Jonathan put me in that sandbox. We sold a lot of scripts. We got a show on the air. Um, I feel like I really upped my my own personal game. And then we shuttered the company in 2007 and I went to work for NBC Universal in the diversity space, which was kind of, you know, taking a lot of the stuff that I knew before and using it in a very different way. And, uh, and I was able to open doors in a different way. I was able to open doors not only on the writers and the director's side, but also on the executive side. And the other part of this whole story is that while I was doing all this development and working with, you know, content and um, and scripts and all of that, at the same time I had started a nonprofit with a friend of mine named Bruce Bruce Evans, who was working at NBC. And Bruce and I had put together this this nonprofit called Color Entertainment, which was to help support creative executives of color. So by the time I get to NBC, we were seven years into it and the job at, at NBC was they wanted someone not only to help with the writers and directors and the creative programs but also someone to help um, introduce creative executives of color which was my thing to NBC so I had all of that knowledge 
I don't even, I, I guess by chance, but, but just, you know, maybe also by design, I, I came at the right time for the right job. And then after being at, um, at NBC Universal for about six and a half years, uh, where I oversaw the, the programs and all of the diversity for the 20 different networks, and I ran the diversity councils, and, um, and so I was really in, I think, working in the big leagues at that point with, you know, we had 20,000 employees at the time at NBC Universal, and I'm sitting in the room with the president of Focus Features and the president of, you know, NBC and the president of Bravo and Oxygen. So I had this, this crazy 30,000 foot view of the business. And, um, and I was, <laughs> quite honestly, sometimes scared out of my wits because they were asking me to do things that I had never in a million years thought would, I would ever have to do. Like, oh yeah, you're speaking to thousands of people at this conference. And I was like, no. <laughs> But I had to stretch myself, and it was the best, I think, um, education that I could have because it gave me, again, another skill set. And then after I left NBC Universal, I went to HBO where I got back into the, really into the, the creative nitty-gritty of, you know, working with writers, and this time working with baby writers, and emerging writers, and write, emerging directors, and cinematographers, and, you um, uh, and ADs and line producers and a lot of a lot of other kinds of creative folk. Um, I was working there at um, at HBO and developing those those um, those talented people and giving them the next their next uh, opportunity. And then at the top of of 2020, um, they asked me to to level up again and to take a big promotion. And at this point in my life, I had. I had gone back to school for my MFA, which was a bit of me saying to the creative community, hey, I'm making a pivot again. I'm mm. going to try something new. And hopefully everybody will come along on the, on the ride with me. So, uh, and then I got into Sundance um, in October of 2019. So the top of 2020, I was offered this job. And without a moment's hesitation, I said no. Now. The, the crazy part about that is that I was making a pretty good amount of money. I was, I got a lot of stock options. I got, you know, three weeks or four weeks a year for vacation and, a, and healthcare. And, but I was ready to bank on me and to bet on me and, and to take a leap. And I had taken the leap before because I'd gone from, you know, working at UPN to, to being a producer. And that was a big jump off of the cliffs. cliffs. So I wasn't unused to doing that kind of thing, but this was a big one. Um, but I felt really sure and secure in my, that I had to do it. I, there was something in me that just said, if I don't do it, I will be forever regretful if I don't take this chance. And so far it's worked, so far it's worked out. So I leave HBO at the, at the, in the middle of July. I think it was like the 16th was my last day. 17th, I was like free. And I'm terrified. Mm. And I think, oh no, what did I do? Health insurance runs out in two weeks, oh no. And yet I did feel like they gave me a deal at HBO. I was gonna be okay. I took a major hit financially, but I'm not going to starve. And a week after 
I left HBO and rolled into this this first look deal with HBO, I had a book deal. And, and it, I think of it as the universe kind of saying, okay, you're gonna be all right. Um, there are times when the universe is not very kind, but that way <laughs> the universe was very kind. And, uh, and I had that to, to take me through the rest of the year, 2020, which was an amazing way to spend it. I was living up in Montana in, in solitude and I had a lot, of, a lot of stuff to download from my brain and into this book. Um, and then in, in May of this year, I was offered a staff job on Our Kind of People, and I've been doing that ever since. Well, that is awesome. And, and there's so many things um, about that story that, uh, that I think inform your book in the, in the sense that you've been very much a, a coach through a lot of your career, guiding people um, helping them develop their careers, develop their stories. And, uh, and so in your book, you're not just un unpacking what it means to be uh, an executive, but you're also helping, helping people develop their careers. And, uh, and so let, let's just go through, I, I really pulled a lot of things out of your book and I wanna ask you um, to, give, to shed some light on some of the things that you talked about. Uh, of course, we're not going to be able to cover everything in the book, and that's why I say, please, everybody, buy this book. <laughs> I, I won't recommend every single book wholeheartedly like this, but this one is something that absolutely has to be on your shelf. Um, but uh, in, in your book, you talk about the way that writers self-sabotage, uh, fear, self-doubt, imposter syndrome. You mentioned a couple of those things already. Um, talk, talk about how... First of all, how common those are and how to overcome those things. Okay, so this is so interesting because I just came back from the Austin Film Festival and I was listening to some writers. These are big writers who were talking about, there was a, there was a panel, um, and uh, I think it was Meg Lefauve who actually who said that they still have it, that you know she's written some of the biggest movies for Pixar ever and she still has it. So everybody has this self-doubt. I think it's part of the creative process. You're, you want to do something amazing and you're afraid of falling short. And that's a great motivator. You want to do your best work. So I say use that because um, we all want to be better. We all want to make sure that we're doing the best. That's why we rewrite and rewrite and re rewrite because we need to make sure that it's the best that we can put out there. Um, I don't know that any of that is terribly productive. Mm. So yes, we're gonna have to wallow in self-pity, but don't wallow too much. Don't let it cripple you to the point where you can't get up and write that next draft or, or write a short story or even do a poem or whatever you wanna do to feed that part of your soul that's crying out to be creative. Mm. Everybody gets it. And, um, and I think we just have to figure out a way to work with it and and to move past it mm. because you still have to do the work and you still have to put it out there in order for anybody to receive it and to respond and when we take too much time with it and we give it too much power then it can be debilitating and and you just have to know that every single person on the planet i'm sure william goldman was riddled with self-doubt at times mm. but he was the greatest screenwriter that probably ever lived so so take that and just go, well, if he had it, and if Meg Lefauve had it, and, and everybody has it, 
then work with it and figure out a way that it's going to drive you as opposed to set you back. Because if it takes too much of your energy, it will stop you. And I do say, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about in the book that I've said to many, many people throughout my career is that you have to think back about why you wanted to be a writer in the first place or why you wanted to be in entertainment. It doesn't have to be for a writer. It could be anybody. And it was because someone wrote something and someone filmed something and someone acted in something that, made, that inspired you. So somebody put something out there that changed your life and wanted you and you wanted to do that. So the best thing that you can do is to take that information and go, if I stop right now, I might be stopping somebody else from having that same transformative experience because I'm thinking too much about myself. I'm too much in my head. I'm too much about, you know, I've got to be perfect. When whatever you say, because you are uniquely you and because it's something that's coming from your heart, that is going to help transform somebody and that's going to make somebody else feel not so alone. And I, I had this conversation with someone, um, I think it was at, it was, it was a couple years ago, really. And a, and a, a young man was, was talking about the first time that he knew that he wasn't, he wasn't alone in the world and that he first time he saw himself uh, and he happened to be a gay man and he said it was something that, that he saw. It was a piece of material that he saw either in a movie or TV show. And I said, if that made you feel that way and you are bringing something similar to your experience to put on film, you're going to have that. You're going to, I guarantee you, someone's going to see that and someone's going to feel like you felt. So if you put it in that perspective, you take yourself out of the equation. You stop focusing so much about yourself and it becomes more about the work and it becomes more about everybody else that you want to share that work with. And I think for me that always gets me out of my headspace where I go, you know, people aren't really looking at me. They're not really, they don't care. They don't care my, how my hair looks. They don't care how my makeup is. They don't care about how fat I am or how thin I am. That's, nobody's looking at you as hard as you're looking at yourself. So take yourself out of the equation because it's not about that. It's about what you're, what you're putting on that paper. It's the lasting effect of your words because they are transformative. Hmm. Very, very cool. Well, we're, we're going to um, pivot a little bit and talk about um, people starting out and starting out also meaning people coming to L.A. for the first time. Uh, say, for instance, for me, I, I moved here from Canada eight years ago, and one of the hardest things for me to learn was um, in Toronto, you could get hired based on a resume. There are many places, um, even in the film and TV industry, where you can get hired based on a resume not at all true in LA it and it's and it's not I had heard about it being about who you know and it's even more than that um, say for instance in my side of the industry in editing it's they have to know somebody who has worked with you right and that's even a higher level than who you know or it could be that it's not just who you know but they have to vouch for you right and their name is on the line or their 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 reputation is on the line and so um, it can be especially challenging for somebody, you know, they're thinking about moving to LA from Minnesota or Arkansas or wherever, um, or maybe they're in a different industry and they want to come into film and television and they don't know 
anybody. Um, talk about how you can break through that barrier. Um, you mentioned how, how when you started, um, you, you had to build that from scratch. So, so what are some tips about how you can um, widen the network of who you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit easier now that we're in a virtual, I don't know. I, I think we're always gonna be a little bit in a hybrid society from now on, which is funny because years ago I had read a book and I can't remember the name of the book, but someone, I think this guy was like a, like a head of a, I don't know, a, I, IBM or Xerox, it was one of those companies. But he said, yeah, we're gonna eventually be in, in, a, in a society where it's, it's all gonna be virtual and it's going to be subject matter experts are gonna be the rule of the day. It's not gonna be big corporations. Everyone's gonna have a very specific thing that they do really well. And I think that's where we're headed. Um, if you're from out of town, if you're not from Los Angeles, and I'll even say if you're not, because I think New York is a little, you know, it's a little dicey too, but New York, they've got, you know, they've got late night, they've got movies, but particularly if you're, if you're not living in Los Angeles, where most of the hirings for television happens, you can build up your resume before you come out to LA. You can, obviously you're gonna stash as much money as humanly possible, because you do need to be out here. So much happens in Los Angeles. Mm. It's the screenings and it's the cocktail parties and it's the WGA and PGA events and the conferences. There, there's just so much, there's many more opportunities to meet people in Los Angeles. Um, your writer's group will probably be in Los Angeles. Uh, any kind of production that you are gonna be a PA, it's gonna be in Los Angeles for the most part. So you are gonna make, have to make the move eventually. But in the meantime, you can do a lot to set yourself up for success. So for example, there are quite a few festivals that are happening online. There are opportunities for people in those festivals to network. They do a great job of doing cocktail hours. You can make sure that you are volunteering for events. So if you live in, in Austin, Texas, and you're volunteering at the Austin Film Festival or ATX, you're gonna meet people, or South by Southwest, you're gonna meet people. And that's gonna be your first connection to Hollywood. And so long as you are not, you know, acting out, <laughs> so long as you are not annoying, so long as you are comporting yourself in a business-like manner, people, and you are doing the work and you are showing up on time and you are acting responsibly and, and being, um, the best you you can be, people are gonna notice that and people are going to then connect you to other people. You have to do that work. And then you have to also network and follow up and you know make sure that you put the people that you've met in your phone and you send them whatever, send them updates on, on what you're doing and then what you want. But there's a ton of ways to skin that cat. There are organizations everywhere. NAMIC I think has, has um, chapters in every state, I think, WICT. So there are places that you can go that are centers for, or hubs, where people like you who love content gather. Go find those, and one will lead you to another. So just search, just Google it, just search the web, and I guarantee you that one will sort of be the gateway to the next. And you just start to sign up for those things, and you volunteer in your, in your neighborhood and you go to the local 
college that probably has some sort of a film school there and you volunteer to PA so that you then have a PA credit on your resume and you're telling the story of how committed you are to the industry. One of my first jobs in high school was I was an usher for the Geffen Theater. So people came to the Geffen Theater all the time. There were productions always there. So that was my, I put that on my resume. So you have the ability to to build upon that. And what we're looking for in a resume is we're looking for someone to show how committed they are to the entertainment business. Because we're all freaks about content. We watch everything, we listen to everything, we read everything, and we want someone who's just as excited about it as we are. Because if you're not, then, you know, go work in a bank. But we spend so much time together. We are on set for 13 hours a day or 12 hours a day or, you know, however much time IATSE allows us to be on set. Um, we, we are, we are, we are with each other so, so long that you have to work with people that you, that we all like hmm. and the people who the do, who do the job. So that's the, that's part of it. You know, it's, and it is, you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, we are going to reach for the person who's been vouched for. We're going to reach for the person who's really close to us. We're not going to go look for somebody who doesn't have any of those credits because we're looking, we're trying to hedge our bets and to get the best people possible for the job. So if you are doing the work and you are, you know, now again, now that there's, it's a virtual world, you can reach out to a company and read scripts. You can read scripts for the blacklist. You can read scripts for, um, uh, I don't know, script, script anatomy does, but you can read scripts for Coverfly, you know, any of these places. So, but you have to do the work in order to get that first gig. Yeah, and I, I would add also conventions can be amazing. Um, and, and I think the th one of the things I've learned is it's not just screenwriting conventions or pitch fests or things like that. Um, Comic-Con has more writing and industry panels than most screen screenwriting conventions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and every one of them, um, there, there's writers that will, after the panel, will stick around and if you want to come up and talk to them. I've met more television writers, showrunners, uh, and people in the industry that way. Um, and they love their super fans. Mm -hmm. And th those people are super, super, you know, open and eager, and they want to hear that you love their show. So, yeah, I, f I found, you know, even just going to Austin Film Festival, there are people I never would have thought in a million years would be just hanging around, and they're all hanging around because they love to pass on their knowledge of the business. You know, these are people who are huge and have their own shows and have done multiple, you know, million-dollar, bajillion-dollar movies. So... And they're still, you know, they're still in it and they still want to pass along as much information as they possibly can. So if you show up, they're going to show up. And, and something that I, I did a lot in Toronto and also when I first moved to L.A. is um, is asking people if they would come and have coffee or lunch. Yeah. Um, I kid you not. I've I've reached out to showrunners. I've big producers, directors. I have never had somebody say no. And. I, it was it was surprising to me. I expected to hear no a lot, right? And I and I found that people were very gracious. Um, there are definitely those some some tips you had in your book about um, etiquette for that kind of thing and and how 
how to make the most out of those times? Um, what, what are some of those things? Well, obviously show up on time and obviously go to them because they are the more important person in the, in the equation. So make sure that you're doing something that makes it time efficient for them. But I also think that when you're in that, and you have that 15 minutes, and usually 15 minutes, you might ask for 15 minutes, you might spread to 50, you know, to an hour, you never know. But come prepared and know what they've done and make sure that when you're asking questions that you're asking questions that make sense. And, um, and I always say, always have something in your back pocket to pitch, even if it's just an area, because you never know if they're gonna open the door and say, hey, what are you thinking about doing? I don't, at that point, I don't pitch a whole thing. I would just say, hey, this is the area I'm noodling on, because then that sort of teases and whets the appetite and it gets you in for an actual meeting. Hmm. But I used to just show up prepared and, uh, and make sure that you know what they've done Make sure that you have, you know, I have a, a, I know somebody who, when they get in the presence of somebody who matters, they always ask the dumbest questions. <laughs> and I just go, I know what's happening right now. You are terrified. And so the thing that comes out is this dumb question. I'm thinking, but everybody wants to talk about their, their path. So ask them something simple. It doesn't have to be mind bending. You don't have to, you know, dig deep to find a really good question. It could just be about, hey, tell me about the, the hardest time you had on, on, you know, whatever the last movie, last TV show, how'd you overcome it? Or um, what was the favorite, your favorite thing that never got made? I mean, people love to talk and they mm. just want, they're just human beings. It's not like they're, they're not, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not the, I don't know. I don't even know what's the, what's the, the, the biggest thing in the world. They're not the, the president of the universe. They're just human beings. Mm. Well, and you also talked about um, crafting your personal narrative. I would imagine that would be a key in those times. Um, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, everyone always says, no matter what, no matter what, in your first meeting with somebody, they're going to say, hey, tell me about yourself. So you need to be prepared, and you need to be able to either say very, very quickly, if it's at a cocktail party and you're, you know, you're ordering drinks at the at the bar, you're going to want it to be really pithy. You want to like one sentence or a couple words but if you're sitting in an office with someone and they ask you that question you need to make sure that you have a, a wrap you need to have you know to make sure that you know here's a really great interesting story about myself this is who I am this is who I think I am as a writer and that takes time it takes mm -hmm. time to craft that and the conversation that you have with an executive is probably gonna be a very different conversation that you have with a showrunner There'll be elements that are going to be the same, but there's going to be a little bit more depth probably with your showrunner than it is with an executive. You're going to probably keep it a little high level with the executive, but you want to make sure that you're roping them in and that you're telling them something that makes your story stand out. And I have this, this sort of way to do um, your personal narrative where you draw the circle and, and you, you put only like the seven most critical things that you think have brought you to where you are today and who you are as a as an artist today and tell that you can tell that story either in five minutes or in 20 minutes but you should be prepared to be able to do both um, but come prepared because no one wants a meandering story about your entire life but they do want to know the very specific things and the highlights that are have made you have brought you here 
And, um, and in a showrunner meeting, they're looking for stories. So if you're bringing in something that's basically your resume, they were gonna, they're gonna want something a little bit more, more interesting and deeper than that. They wanna know that you've had um, family, um, an interesting family life, or that you moved to an interesting you know, state, or you had a very interesting experience. And so you're gonna wanna bring a little bit more of your personal story maybe a little more of your trauma or the funny parts of your trauma, but they want to know that they can, that you're going to be open in that room and that you're going to, they're going to be able to mine your experience for story. Mm. So I say in the book, this is how you, how to do it. I always say also in the middle of that circle, put the answer to the other question that they're going to ask you every time, which is where do you see yourself or what do you want to do? What kind of show do you want to work on? What do you want to write? It's always that next question, which is, who do you see yourself as as an artist? And, um, and make sure that you have all that, and then, then you'll be good. You'll be good. Mm, very cool. And, and something I, I, uh, I noticed in your book, you, you mentioned um, being prepared with something to give, um, that, that especially when you're reaching out in panels and things like that. That if you if you have a, a resource or or something that can help them, that's that's particularly uh, helpful. Uh, my my story with this, um, I think I may have shared this er- much much earlier on the podcast, but um, I knew a high level writer who was going through a tough time, um, and I I gathered together a bunch of fan letters um, and sent them to her, and she she wrote back to me crying and she said that she had never once and this is she was a high level writer she'd been in the industry 20 something years she had never once gotten a fan letter Mm. and it really really encouraged her and helped her to get through that time later she invited me to come uh, took me by the hand introduced me to every single writer on the show she was working on Um, my daughter's 13th birthday was coming up and she offered to have her come and sit in the director's chair when they shot the finale of her favorite show. Wow. Um, and then from that, another writer who knew her was moved by what she had done. And so my, four, uh, my daughter's 14th birthday comes around and she invites one of the stars of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to come to, to celebrate her birthday. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and all of this happened from just trying to think through something that they might need. Right, right, um, right. And and I think if we remember that these are people, that they have real lives, real needs, right, it can right. it can help. And they're not just there to service you. I think that people always come, especially when they come up to folks after they've gotten on a panel. It's always with an ask, mm-hmm. as opposed to with a give. And that's when I say, and it doesn't always have to be this way. You don't have to always come, you know, with a plate of cookies. It's that's not the thing, but. Um, but it is about making sure that you're, you're a value add to them because we get tons of requests for, hey, can you read my script? Hey, I have a movie that I want to shop around. Like there's, there's always a, th- there's a thousand people who are asking for something. And the people who always stood out to me were the people who said, hey, you talked about X, Y, and Z on this panel. I think there's a resource for you that I can share with you. Or I read a book that you might like. Or, hey, there's a link to something that you, can I send it to you? Or, and I might not give you my email. I might ask you to send it to my assistant. 
it, but it's still a it's still a touch point and that assistant is is the gatekeeper to me so and i remember this you know this goes back to wow in the late 80s when i was when i was working for gary marshall i, I heard he said one thing that stood out to me which is that everybody always wants something and i thought yeah that's coming from a guy who made a ton of careers and he still felt as though everybody was always asking him for something. They weren't just offering either their time or themselves. There was always an ask attached to it. And I thought, and that's, that's stuck in my head because, because it's true. It, we all get that everybody wants to move forward. Everybody wants to move forward. But sometimes the best way to move your relationship forward with somebody particularly somebody you don't know well, is to be a value add. Because we will remember that, we'll remember the kindness of that. Um, I remember the people who, if I came into, I went to the, a, a festival, I guess it was a conference, a couple of years ago, and I had no idea where I was going, and someone uh, uh, offered to, yeah, it was actually, we were, we were walking out, and they offered to run the gauntlet for me and said, hey, I'm going to help you get from here out, out of this room. Just stick by me. And it was really, really helpful. And, I th and that person, I'm still friends with that person. So sometimes it's just being a human being mm. um, and not always asking for something. And like I said, there's plenty of ways. There'll be plenty of ins. You can always you know, tap them at another point. But also they want to know that you are going to be moving your career forward. And that always gets people on the board. That's on board. They're, we're a little bit more likely to to help you out if you're helping yourself mm. and not just saying, hey, you know, I know you can help make my career, make my career for me. I think that there's there are other ways to to get that in and to form a relationship, because I also say in this book, you know, when you're in the industry, you're in it for life. Essentially, you're in it for, if you're 20 years old, you're gonna be there until you're 80. So you might as well make, start making relationships as opposed to just connections. Mm. Because you're gonna sit at the same parties and events and conferences with the same people for the rest of your career. So you might as well make those people friends or acquaintances or, or at least, you know, um, allies starting now yeah and it, and things can change really quickly uh, i just saw on twitter um there's a writer who said six years ago he dreamed of being a tv writer and then he he just posted a picture of his name in the credits of a of a show nice um and and so it it really is true that you could be seeing somebody in a panel and five or six years from then you might be getting on staff for a show they're running oh yeah yeah and I think uh, if I look back on, you know, some of the folks that I talked to even five years ago, and they're now on their third, fourth, you know, show, and they're rising up through the ranks, it does happen. It can happen quickly. You know, sometimes it can also take a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have to know, you have to do a little hard work about what's going to make you happy in this industry. And it might not look like everybody else is happy. So dig deep and figure out why do you want what you want? How are you gonna get it? Um, but also once you get it, is that gonna be the thing that makes you happy? Because mm. getting on staff of a show isn't for everybody. Not everybody wants to be in a room. Yeah. 
I certainly did. I, I love the experience of collaborating. Um, but there, I know people that would not do well in a room. They need to be solo. And I think too, there's so many ways to make content that you have to decide, do I want to work within a system or independently? You know, do I want to write novels for the rest of my life? There's so many ways to create hmm. and, um, and you have to figure out how, how, what that lifestyle is going to be for you. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I, I even started this podcast in the first place was because I basically most of what you heard and saw was the showrunner, 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 showrunner. And I wanted to shine the light on, on different levels and different positions within the industry. I, I know I've heard many people say they're a strong number two. Right. And they don't want to leave that position. They don't yes. want to be a showrunner. Yeah, yeah. I they know don't a lot want of people to create like that, shows. For sure. Yeah. Um, because they don't want to be the CEO of a corporation with all these crazy responsibilities. They just want to write. Yeah. I mean, we get job. into this because we want to write. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. And uh, and I and I think it's it's important to reframe um, and learn. Like, when I started film school, the the prof asked, "What does everybody want to be?" Every single person wanted to be a director. Because that's all we knew. Right. But by the end of film school, we learned, oh, there's an editor, there's a sound person, there's this, there's that, there's producer, there's there's executives, there's there's all kinds of positions in the industry, and not all of us are going to be suited for directing. Right, right. Yeah, I took, a, I took the Warner Brothers directing course. I actually had this conversation last night with somebody about uh, about the director thing. I never in a million years thought about directing I I only th I think of content as words on the page. So when I watch a movie, I I think about oh how what I wonder what words they use on the page, and uh, and someone said oh I think you'd be a great director and I thought oh the idea of having to move people around and troubleshoot and everybody asks a question all the time I'm like oh. I don't think so. <laughs> that sounds like yeah. somebody else might do it a lot better than me. And also I'm always fascinated by when something comes out on film and I go, Oh, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. That's a really interesting shot, you know? Yeah. And I know I, I would not be suited to location work. <laughs> Those 14 hour days and yes. night Although shoots. It can be, it could be fun. It could be really fun if you're, yeah, it, it could be fun, but you gotta be suited to it. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about, um, so continuing that conversation, when you're meeting people in, in conventions or having coffee with somebody, um, what's the crazy check? Well, the crazy check is, and it's, uh, I don't love the, the name of it, but that's an, sort of an industry thing, but it's, um, it's, it's when you're not passing it, it's you're not passing it for a reason. It's because you are way overstepping or you are not playing well in the sandbox with other people. You know, in a writer's room, you need to be quiet sometimes. You need not to say everything that's on your mind at all times. You cannot suck the air out of the room. You, when, when you show up, you need to read the room. You need to have a level of EQ. And the people who don't pass the test are the people who don't have that level of, of um, they're not very self-aware. Hmm. and. And again, there are just, there are just, it's just too few, there's, there's just so many hours in the day. And again, people want to work with people that they can rely on and vouch for 
and who do the work. And when you are really acting up, you don't pass that test and people don't want to work with you. So you have to make sure that you are doing what you can to act professionally. Uh, and I think in the book, I also talk about the fact that I had had this conversation with this really great young woman who was coming right out of school. And it was, and this was actually just before lockdown. We, uh, we had this great, we were firing all cylinders. We were having a great conversation. I happened to be in a conference room with a bunch of you know, students and, and she and I were vibing. And she's like, I want to be in post-production. I was like, great. And by the time we ended up leaving the conference room and getting out to the elevator, I was introducing her to one of the VPs of post-production. And I was like, so psyched. And I'm going to introduce this young woman to this woman. And then I looked down and she's literally wearing leopard fuzzy house slippers. Oh my. And I went, you came to a, a top premium cable company and you sat and had a conversation with the SVP of talent development. And then I introduced you to somebody and you didn't even have the awareness, the self-awareness or the courtesy of putting on shoes to come to our company. And, uh, and, I, and, and it was like, that was a, that was a tell that mm -hmm. she, she wasn't interested. She wasn't ready. She wasn't, that it just was never going to work. And, and it was too bad because I thought she had some promise, but she, you know, it was a ding, hmm. right? And it was a ding that she can't recover from, or right. at least couldn't recover from at that time. Yeah. Well, so. now this, this kind of thing can be cultivated. I mean, there's, there's definitely, it's a natural thing for some people. It's not natural for others. But, um, but I, I do think, except for extreme cases, um, that these kinds of things can be cultivated. I know there's coaches out there, uh, but definitely um, I, I think there has to be a lot of humility involved. Well, I think, I do think that people can recover from it. You just have to, like I said, you have to be self-aware. You have to, you have to think about how you're coming off to somebody else. I, years ago when I was NBC, I had to mentor, I was mentoring a young, a young man through a program and he refused to take notes and it wasn't even like there were, they weren't even big notes, but he was so combative to the place where I said, I don't think that television is for you because it's a collaborative medium. And if you are, are at this level where you're hitting a 10, when my suggestion to you is a two, I said, this might not be the place for you. And mm -hmm. I think he, he, again, it's, it's not understanding that, that he would have to be in a room with other people. And he sort of, it was, it was unfortunate because I think he realized or didn't realize, but that he was going from zero to 60 on, on the simplest things and that he really preferred to work solo. He wanted to be a feature writer. And I think in our, his heart, he was a feature writer, but he was stuck in this television program. And I think it was, maybe that was a, a, a turning point for him because I don't recall ever seeing his name again, mm. but sometimes it is, it is a level of self-awareness. And then you just, again, what's going to make you happy? How do you dial it back? How do you, you know, get some tips? How do you work it out with your 
friends who will give you feedback, I'm sure very honest feedback, and go, hey, you know what, let's just, let's just bring it down. Yeah, I, one of my favorite books, it's, it's uh, getting a little dated now, was How to Make It in Hollywood by Linda Buzzle. Um, I wrote it back in the 80s, I think. And, uh, but one of the things she talks about uh, is the Myers-Briggs personality yes. profiles and, and how different personality profiles are suited to different aspects of the industry. Mm. And, I, and I think it's, it is important that you're not trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Right. That, um, and it's not that it's impossible, but it, to, to, to be in a different personality profile. But I think you have to know then what you're going to have to compensate for. Right. Um, but in, anyway, mo moving on, um, let's talk about uh, development. Um, yep. So you obviously know a ton about development because you worked in, in that um, field for quite a while. Um, how should a person decide what to write? <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, that's a big question. How do you know what to write? I like to say the, the breakthrough script is going to be something that's personal. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it so many times that when people tap into their personal story, their personal journey, I, you can also say, write the thing that's, that's the hardest for you to write, um, write the thing that scares you. I think um, Michaela Cole also said that as well, which is write the thing that's going to allow you to open a vein on a page. That's what I, I that's one of my favorite phrases and be as vulnerable as possible because people respond to the emotion and to the authenticity. Mm. And when you write things that are very gimmicky and very plot heavy, but not emotional, people don't necessarily pick it up with the same kind of enthusiasm. They won't hand it to their friends. They won't shout it from the, from the rooftop that it's an amazing piece of material because everybody's seen the plot points and the gimmicks, but the important part, the thing that's gonna bring them back to you over and over again, is how much of you they see on that page. So I say, first of all, you do need a number of, of pieces of material. You should probably at least have three. You will chew through those pieces very, very quickly in the industry as you, as you ramp yourself up. You need at least three things. But you also, I believe, should do as much, it should be as personal as possible. And, and that takes time, and that takes maturity, and that takes depth, and that takes work. One way to do that, I find for myself, is just keep asking myself the question and go deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, why is that? Why is that? How is that for that character? Why is that? Mm -hmm. And when you keep asking that question and you drill as far down as possible, into the to the essence of that character, and it usually comes down to pretty much, you could do it in one word. When you can get down to why that character is driven by something, that is is their that they they lock onto, then you're then you're somewhere, and it, it takes it's it's hard. It's you have to do a lot of hard work, and the people who drop into that quickly, people who are very very vulnerable and very emotional on the page, and follow that character's journey through the emotion and not the plot points are the people who tend to to go from, you know, 
from zero to 60 pretty quick. And there's, a, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, in the, in the phrase that we've heard so often that we should write what we know. And I think in my immature thinking when I was in film school, I thought, well, I'm a young person. I haven't experienced a lot of life yet. I haven't been to Spain. How could I write a story set in Spain or, or, or that kind of thing? But I think um, what you really hit home in your book is that writing what you know is writing the emotions that you know. Right. Um, we've all had relationships. We've all had breakups and we've had hard things happen to us. And those are the things that we got to learn how to translate onto the page. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, let's sort of break open that a little bit. So yes, you're absolutely right. Write what you know is really write the emotions that you know, write the relationships that you know. You, everybody has a mom and a dad and a, it's at some point. And there's, um, there are issues that come with being a part of a family, you can write about that. The more honest you are, the more truthful you are, the more interesting it will be to somebody, the more they'll keep flipping those pages. So those are some of those things that you can, you can, put, you can put that family in space if you want. You can put that family, you know, they could be anything. But the truthfulness has to come through. Mm. There is a reason though, I had talked to somebody um, who did, who was like a Sundance, um, administrator and she said well you know there's a reason that most of the things that go through Sundance are truly 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 personal stories you know those are usually the first stories that that break an artist through a writer director a writer and director and uh, and it's because those are because they've gotten to that place because it's a very emotional um, seminal moment that they are ex exploring on the page so look at those kinds of things and look at anybody's really their first their first piece that really broke them out of the mold and it's usually a personal story and that's where we get that's where we get all the the juicy goodness of our lives and that's what we know so if that's the most emotional place that you can come from why wouldn't you want to put that on the page why wouldn't you, you want someone to know who you are through your work yeah very cool and what, what about the sort of practicals about um, when you're writing television scripts, developing by time slots versus by genre, chasing demos, um, taste clusters you mentioned in your book. What about that kind of stuff in terms of um, trying to write to the market? I don't think you can. I think the market, I think the, the market is too fractured right now. And the things that are breaking through are the things that are passion projects and things that are personal. And I think that you can't game the system anymore. In the, in the same way that when, when there were only three networks, you might have been able to go, okay, uh, ABC does this, NBC does this, CBS does this. Now you've got very personal, interesting things like Rami and Atlanta, and um, and they're they're coming from a lot. Of, there's so many different places, and there's so many different tastes out there that you have to stay true to yourself because someone will want that. Hmm. You can't, you can no longer go, hey, I'm going to write X because I think it'll hit the market. And I, I actually had this, um, I just told the story at the Austin Film Festival. And I hope the writers will forgive me for telling the story. But um, I, had, I had one of the most brilliant writing teams I've ever worked with were young people who came right out of uh, college. They rolled right into my program. And 
we were we had brought them in because we, even though we didn't find an idea and usually you find an idea before you're admitted in the program we didn't find the idea but we knew that we were going to get them there and they came into the program and we could not find an idea and they everything they brought us was derivative of something else and it was all very high concept hunger games meets game of thrones meets something else whatever and it just felt really manufactured and finally i took them aside and i said so what's going on here i go it's just not working um i said so you're doing all this sci-fi stuff are you guys really interested in sci-fi and they go no we hate sci-fi and I, I said, why are you writing it? They go, well, we thought, you know, it's the market. We thought everyone said that there's nobody, you know, that, that this is a space that's an open space. We thought, well, we would go in there. And I said, and yet you hate it. So I said, what do you love? And they go, we love this is us. And I was like, then write your this is us. What is your this is us? Hmm. And they wrote the script. I'm going to say they wrote it so fast, too it poured out of them and it was an amazing script and i when i first read it i sobbed i literally sobbed i was so emotionally affected on page one mm. i was a puddle and i thought that was it and they they have not stopped working they're amazing there's they're an amazing team um and i'm i'm overjoyed at their success but it was because they were they were willing to be so honest and so free on mm. the page and it was it was a crazy crazy amazing script and within within I'm gonna say within a, a couple of days I think they were repped and ended up on a show very shortly after so wow and they haven't stopped working very very cool now um, pitching pitching is something that can be a very scary process um, how important is it to develop this skill as a TV writer? Well, you're going to have to use it for the rest of your life. So whether you're pitching in a writer's room or you're pitching to an executive or to a showrunner, you're, you're, you're going to have to know how to pitch. It's hard. It does take time to pitch. And, and so practice, practice, practice. Practice with your writer's group. Do it as much as you possibly can and see what works and what doesn't work for you. And your pitching is not going to be the same as somebody else's pitch. Uh, there, I've worked with people who are terrible pitchers. Some of them just read their pitch. Some of them have a partner or an agent go in or a producer go in with them. And I think that hopefully as the business starts to change as well, there may be other ways to get, I mean, now people are using pitch decks and sizzle reels and all sorts of things in short films. And not everybody is an amazing pitcher, but you're going to have to figure it out at some point, at some level. Mm. So you might as well, f you know. And, and basically, pitching is just telling a story. Mm. So you're going to tell your story anyway. You're going to tell your story to your mother or your best friend. So it's just an extension of that. Where people get tripped up is that there's everything is riding on it. And so the nervousness, the nerves get to you. But really if you just have the right components and you know what you have to hit and you've practiced you will be fine and the more you do it the better you'll get mm. i when i was an executive i didn't have to pitch to more than seven people in a room to get them to pick up the shows that i wanted to move forward with and then when i got to nbc universal i had to go to a whole nother level of 
public speaking that was completely out of my wheelhouse and knew that if I was going to be successful in any way, I needed to figure that out. So I did Toastmasters and Toastmasters mm. was just revolutionary for me because it just made me so much better and less worried about myself. So again, I took myself out of the equation and, it, and it's, it's really, it's not really about what I look like or what I sound like. It's about, am I imparting the right information to whoever needs to hear it? And so it's, you have to figure out how to pitch. You might want to use cards. You might tell people up in front, hey, you know what? I'm a terrible pitcher. And that'll diffuse the room. That'll mm. just sort of open things up. And people will go, oh, my God. I, and they'll tell you their story about how terrible the, a pitcher they are. So there are ways for you to come into the situation and just nip it in the bud and just go, look, this pitch is going to suck, but the idea is great. <laughs> I hear that, right? I hear yeah. that. Yeah, very cool. Um, we're not going to go into your anatomy of a pitch because I want people to buy your book and have have a chance to read that. You do go into the the structure of the pitch and um, and how to 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 do each part of it, and sure. it's a, it's a really great breakdown. Um, one thing that I found very curious is why do you suggest pitching backwards in your book? Well. Um Pitching backwards is only for you to figure out how to pitch mm -hmm. your show. So it's not, you're not going to go in and, and No, pitch, yeah, yeah. I mean, backwards. as a, as a uh, practice as tool. As a tool? Yeah. Okay, so the reason is, is that sometimes, like when I was in my MFA program, you know, they, they have this exercise where you take a, a, a cop for your screenplay and you beat it out and you go, and my, the one that I was doing was um, Mrs. Doubtfire. So, you know, every beat out of 35 beats is, is three minutes and you sort of look and see, how did somebody else do it so that I'm not recreating the wheel? You don't have to recreate the wheel. And that's mm -hmm. the whole point of pitching backwards. And that's what I call it. It's really just a way to say, hey, look, if there's some, some show, if I'm struggling with, with coming up with my own pitch, how is the show that is very similar to mine? How do you think they would have done it? Because then again, I'm not looking at my particular story beats, but I'm looking at somebody else and going, okay, this is really similar to what I'm doing. If I was pitching this, how would I start? Hmm. How would I finish? What would I want to hit? And then, then you look at your own material and go, oh, I can sort of place the same beats in the same place and let's see how that works. And it might help refine your pitch to go, oh, you know what? I forgot to world build. I forgot to tell people that this is 1835. I forgot to tell people that this is set on the moon. That's pretty important information. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a way to say somebody else was successful doing this thing that I want to do in this kind of way. What do you think they would have, what would have been their process? Hmm. And I think for me, it, it just sort of helps to then check my work essentially. And, and if I'm following that template, it's a little bit easier than starting from scratch. Hmm. Uh, that actually ties in with a question that uh, listener Beth Raymond had. I know you answered a few of her questions on Twitter, um, but she asked, should you mention how it should appeal to a certain demographic, or is that something that you leave for marketing or other people to decide? I think it depends. I think you, you can certainly mention that. I don't, I don't think you, you have to. It should be obvious in your pitch. For example, if you're gonna go to the CW or if you're gonna go to Freeform, they do a very specific thing. So you're not gonna take something that has a 50-year-old lead, potentially, 
to those places. You will probably be doing your YA piece at one of those places. You're not mm. going to take your half hour comedy to the CW. They don't do half hour comedy. So those demos should be implied. It's more than likely that your lead will determine a little some of that. Mm. So if you're doing something that, you know, um, that has a 70 year old lead, my guess is it's going to be a CBS show <laughs> or it's at least going to be something that's going to appeal to a very particular demo. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you have to necessarily say that. And I, again, I, I say, don't chase that. Don't chase, do the show that you want to do mm -hmm. and then find the place that's going to be receptive to that, to that piece of material. Yeah. Um, what's the best way to read the room? When somebody walks in, how, how do you judge, um, who's there and, and tailor your pitch that way? Well, ho hopefully you can read the room. You know, you, you will have been set up for success because your agent or your manager or your production company will have said, hey, this is a cleared area. They want to hear this pitch. They've read your script. They know that, you know, they like you. So hopefully you're going in with, excuse me, with a, with a, hopefully you're going in with some sort of what do they call it? Tailwind? Headwind? Mm -hmm. You're Headwind. going in with some, yeah. with a pre-approved area. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the door at that level, you're already in a good place. And don't forget that the goal is not necessarily to sell that idea. It'd be great if you sold that idea, but the goal is to have a relationship with the people who are in that room. So they ask you back or so that they think of you for a staffing job or an open writing assignment. But the idea is that they, you are building a relationship with them and you want to, they, you want to vibe with them. Mm. So don't get caught up in the idea. I think a lot of people get caught up in, I've got the best idea, but you're, hopefully you'll have 25 of those ideas over the course of your career. It's not about that one. Sometimes that one is the first thing. You might be passionate about it, might be rabid about it. It might never go away. You might want to get it done, but it can't be the only thing that you ever bring to the table. It's got to mm. be, it's got to be multiple things. And how do you get back in the room? Well, by, by getting along with the people who are in that room. Sometimes it's hard to tell if you're, if you're doing well, but for the most part, you're going to get an idea of if people are warm to you, if they're leaning in, if they're listening to you or if they're checked out mm. and it's reading the body language, it's reading the expression on their face. Are they twiddling their thumbs? Are they looking up in the sky? Are they doodling? You know, there are so many ways that you would know. You would know if somebody is, is into you on, on a date, you would certainly know if they're into you in a, in a business setting and in a, into a room. Mm. And I once had this, 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 I, I once pitched to an incredibly cold room and I was pitching myself, pitching f my idea. And I just thought, oh shoot, I'm gonna whiff this terribly. And I just rode with it. Cause I knew that as I'm watching this room, I knew that the, the, that there was one person in particular who always was like this. Mm. And I just knew that I wasn't going to get anything from her. And so I thought, okay, I'm never going to win her over because she, or she's not going to tell me that I've won her over. So let me pitch to everybody else who is nodding and who is like into it. And let me just make sure that I'm playing to that crowd because mm. the stoic person, I may or may not ever win, but if I win the other people over, I'm good. Mm. So, and sometimes you can warm up that room. Sometimes you can, like I said before, admit defeat. 
you know, sometimes it's it's about warming the the you know, in the small talk, it's like, what are you connecting with? So there are times where you can off the bat, if it's, if it's feeling a little off, you know, just like any, any other situation, you know, if you're, you're, you know, you're at a party or at a dinner or you're whatever, and you are feeling the vibe, you know, you can always course correct. You can always, mm -hmm. you know, you can and always play with the crowd a little bit. How do you know when it's time to leave? If they say we want to do it, then get up and go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just cut it short. There's a point after a pitch where they've asked all their questions, and and you know that there's a there's a going to be a little bit of a natural lull, and you just go, well, hey, thank you so much. It's been great being here. Really great meeting you. And then you make your exit. Just don't belabor it because it's mm. the it's the silence and the aftermath and the oh my god, I've I've now overshared. Oh my god, I've now. I have sucked all the air out of the room just by because I couldn't figure out when to leave. Hmm. That's when you turn the yeses into a no. That's right. when you have ex you've shown yourself to not be self-aware and you want to make sure that you are self-aware so you can pass the crazy check. I, one thing I, I don't remember if you mentioned in your book, um, how often do you, would an executive ask, do you have anything else? Well, if you brought in something and and let's just say they've stopped you, you know what, we have something that's like this, then you they may then say, is there anything else you have? Mm -hmm. Or what else are you thinking about? And that's when you hit them with whatever. And like I said, I don't usually come with a, with a second full pitch. I might know it, I might have it, but I would rather them invite me back for the next time. Hmm. Now that we're doing Zooms, I might want to be ready to go because you just don't know if you're going to get them back as easily hmm. as it used to be. So I don't know. I think I think we it might be a wait and see at this point. Yeah. To see how things go. And do you suggest things like leave behinds pitch decks? Well that's actually a I was just on my Writers Guild new member orientation and they said no. Those are those are no no's. Uh -huh. You're not supposed to leave behinds. I as an executive never asked for leave behinds um, because or and as a and as a as a producer never left leave behinds because it's another way for them to say no. Hmm. So if they want more information, hey, I'll come back and I'll repitch it to you, or I'll repitch it to your boss if you need me to do that. But I would rather not leave behind anything. Hmm. But and that's it, me, and I think yeah. it, I do think it's a guild. It's a guild role. Yeah, and it also um, I think it's a little passe. Like it, it used to be much more common than it is now. Yeah, although people are doing decks these days. So yeah. let's just say I'm doing a pitch on Zoom and I'm putting the deck up and they ask for the deck because they have asked for decks. Mm -hmm. And you put a bunch of work into it. I despise decks, but I, I also realize that that might be old thinking. I might have to change. I might have to, you know, I might have to adjust. But I, uh, it's, it's way too much... It's extra work hmm. to find the picture of so and so, and you know, put the text, and then it's it's too much for me. That actually seems like it was borrowed from reality TV because re reality TV has always had decks. Yeah, yeah, and sizzles and mm -hmm. uh, and lookbooks. Yeah. So, but I think it's it's cropped up here because of COVID, mm -hmm. and somebody said yes, and now it's a, a whole industry. It's a whole market. Now, you, you mentioned in your book, um, no matter where you're at, to always have something to pitch. 
Talk about that. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's not as hard as you might think to come up with ideas. I mean, ideas are a dime a dozen. So, and it's really not about the idea. It's about how you, as a writer, write that idea. That's what people are interested in. Because we've heard it all. Everybody's heard it all. You think you've come up with something that's that no one's ever heard before. Believe me, you've heard, we've heard it. It's about how you are going to approach the material that we buy into. Mm. And so I, there's no excuse not to have an idea. They're everywhere. It's, it's, it's in the zeitgeist. It's in sound Google. It's, it's in the LA times. It's everywhere that you might consume material. It's the books that you read as a kid. It's your own personal story. There's never an excuse for you not to have an idea. So just mind that you can mind, you know, what happened to you at five years old. Um, you can mind, you know, something that happened to you yesterday. So there's never, you're, the world is filled with, with ideas. Um, I used to do this, this, you know, just go looking through all the magazines back when, in the days when there were magazines Now everything's online, but you can just look through magazines and see what people are talking about and what's happening in the world right now. And that, and there's going to be an idea in, in that. So there's, you know, there's really no excuse for, for not having something to sort of pull out of your pocket when that time comes and they say, hey, what are you thinking about? Mm. Even if it's just a character. Hey, you know what? I've been thinking about, you know, a way to, to upend the, the police detective genre. And here's the character who has a really interesting, unique point of view. I haven't ever have anything figured out yet, but this is what I'm noodling on. And then people are going to go, oh, I want that, mm. whatever that is. You very, can, very can, cool. It's, 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 like I said, it's not brain surgery. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what I, I think we've covered pretty much everything. We're going to start to wrap things up here. Um, I, I do want to mention that there is lots more in the book. Um, I mean, you, you, you talk about the nuts and bolts, about building character, about strengthening, strengthening your pilot story. And that, uh, Myers-Briggs is mentioned in there. And, um, you know, that goes back to, all that stuff goes back to the ancient Greeks. So. Yeah. So, executive chair. <laughs> Thank you. Definitely buy it. Um, and your Twitter, Instagram handles? I am Kelly Edwards underscore co or co on Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And Kelly, Kelly Edwards dot co on my website. And then that, that has all the links to everything else. Yeah. And, I, and I'll have those links in, in the show notes of the episode. Um, Really, really appreciate you coming up to my place and, and taking the time to, to do this interview. Um, any you. final thoughts? Okay, well, here's my final thought, which is, I think this is something that I say in the very beginning of the book and probably at the very end of the book, but just the industry only works because people bring new ideas to it. So bring your ideas, get in however you get in. Once you're in, you're part of the family do the work, show up, be a good person. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people who you just go, oh my God, that's the most unlikely person. Are they really going to make it? And they make it. And the stories are, are insane. Now, does it work for everybody? No, it doesn't always work in the same way that you expect, but it will work out you have to decide again what makes you happy and if that thing that you think is going to make you happy is what you want to spend your time on or if you want to do something else is this this is this is a business that's up to you 
You know, it, it moves forward because you're in it, because we have a constant influx of new people. So why not you? And the more you put your, the barriers in your own way, that's, that's going to be up to you. Hopefully this book takes some of the scary out of it. Hmm. So hopefully it gives you some ways around some of the tricky parts. The whole goal of this book is it's basically an invitation. It's an invitation for you to do your best work. Give as much of yourself as you possibly can to your art. Um, and have fun with it. Hopefully, hopefully it, it's, it's something that will move you forward. Um, so I think that's, I just want to make sure that people know that, that this is, you know, I, my goal is with this is to, is to push some of those gatekeepers out of the way mm. and then look at some of these success stories as, as a template for all the myriad of different ways that you can penetrate this industry. You know, we've got so many different ways, many, many, many more than when I was coming up. So take advantage of as much as you can. Well, I can't think of a better place to end up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Please follow me on Twitter for the latest updates. At Gray Jones is my handle. Make sure to bookmark tvwriterpodcast.com and scriptmag.com. You can find the video version of this podcast at iTunes, Podbean, and on YouTube. Make sure you do subscribe to all these places. Audio only, you can find us at iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or Pandora. And on Instagram, you can follow at tvwriterpodcast. AVgearguy.com uses state-of-the-art technology to bring new life to old films and videos, like the Lost Betty White series Pet Set, which they recently restored for its 50th anniversary. They can apply the same technology to your documentary, film and video archive, and family videos. Visit avgearguy.com for details. Drivingfootage.com provides 360-degree driving plates for film and TV. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.